Good morning. We are in chapter five of Lamentations, um, five weeks in the book. Hope you all feel sufficiently guilty. Um, I know some of us are ready for a pivot, um, and so we'll do that. Hopefully, this chapter helps us do that. Uh, We're going to split the uh, sermon up into three parts or subheadings. Um, The three sermon parts are, one, suffering is a communal activity, two, living faithfully is hard, and three, worship reprograms the heart. And if there's one main idea that we're driving through, um, it's this, in light of a tumultuous world, we're tempted towards dysfunction, and we need worship to reprogram our heart. I'll say that again, in light of a tumultuous world, we are tempted towards dysfunction, and we need worship to reprogram our heart. Let's start here. Um, one, suffering is a communal activity. Verse 1 says, Remember, O Lord, what has befallen us. Look and see our disgrace. Remember, O Lord, what has befallen us, and look and see our disgrace. If, um, if you're like me, suffering can be one of the loneliest periods of your life. And aside from the psychological, spiritual, physical, marital effects and difficulties um, that suffering can bring, one of the most devastating is the isolation that seems to compound everything that you feel. And there's a sense that no one quite understands. There's a sense that, um, that I live on this island and this island only continues to grow. And if, you, if you're watching someone else who suffers, there's this other sense that, you know, I, I don't really know how much to get involved. How, how much do I, do I step in? Do I stay out? Sometimes we, we feel relieved that we get to stay out, but then we feel guilty that we're staying out. And it's this back and forth that we feel and, and, the, and that we face because it seems like um, no one else understands what I'm going through or I don't know how much I should be um, getting involved. So when I say suffering is a communal activity, what's the main point? And I feel like if you've been in a church for any, any amount of time, um, the first thought is, well, I've heard this before. He's going to tell me to press in a community. You know, press in a community, and, and we've heard that, right? This beautiful phrase um, that we've heard so often, usually the first thing that, that we hear when we tell people that we're having a hard time, they say, hey, uh, press in a community. Um, but, the, but the question for us this morning is, even if we've heard this, why don't we do it? Why is it so hard? Why does suffering continue to remain one of the most debilitating, um, lonely periods of our life? Um, Why is reaching out to people who are suffering so painfully awkward? And I think in our heart of hearts, we struggle to believe that other people are affected by what we're going through. We operate day to day, day in, day out, thinking, you know, the whole point of what we're supposed to be doing is just going about my own business. We've heard that before. You know, you're in in kindergarten, and you say something about somebody else, and then the first thing the teacher tells you is, well, mind your own business. And so we're, we're calibrated to think that what I'm supposed to do is just not be a burden on other people. And if you see someone else who's suffering, what you, your deepest fear is that you'll be labeled as an intruder, that you overstep some invisible boundary and, and be labeled as an intruder. And so this is, this is everything we face, but, but this morning, what I want to do with this first point is just maybe, just maybe, get us to believe that we're more connected than we want to admit. That somehow my suffering affects you more than you care to admit and vice versa. Um, and the way I want to say this is by saying um, suffering, because we're so connected, happens to a community. It happens in a community to the whole community. Suffering happens in a community to a whole community. 
And uh, to make this point, I want to read one of my wife's favorite poems. Because as sermons illustrate, um, sermons are also written in community. And the poem is written by John Donne, um, English poet, um, some, living some centuries ago. And he writes this poem called No Man is an Island. Help um, get my wife into a postgrad, postgrad program. And if it's good enough to do that, maybe it could convey a point or two um, this morning. But before I read it, I'm not very good at English. I was born in another country, um, just like JD, same country. And um, I had to look up a couple words. And so I'm going to just define a couple words for us, just in case you, you struggle through it too. Um, the first word is clod, which means a lump of earth. I don't use clod on a day-to-day basis. Uh, promontory, I don't even know if I'm saying that correctly, um, but that means a point of land that juts out into water like a peninsula. Um, and the last also defined like a, a, a concept, bell tolling. Someone thought it was a good idea um, in England at some point to ring the bell every time somebody died. And so that's what, that's what the poem refers to. But let me read it for us, okay? No man is an island. <clears throat> no man is an island entire of itself. Every man is a piece of a continent a part of the main. If a clod be washed away by the sea, Europe is the less, as well as if a promontory were, as well as any manner of thy friends are of thine own were. Any man's death diminishes me because I'm involved in mankind and therefore never send to know for whom the bell tolls. It tolls for thee. No man is an island. No parish member is an island if you're part of one of our parishes this morning. Um, No family member is an island. Suffering happens in a community to the whole community. I was recently in a very long car ride with a counselor friend of mine, and one of the things he was, we were asking him about his program, um, catching up, and and he was telling us that one of the things they taught him as a a counselor is that um, 60 plus percent of um, being able to tell why success happened in a counseling relationship is dependent on the relationship a counselor has with their patient. 60 plus percent. The The remaining 30 plus is everything else, means, methods, strategies. But 60-plus percent is just dependent on whether the patient and the counselor get along. And so I looked at him, and I said, so you're telling me what we really struggle with is loneliness, and that this just confirms that our deepest need is to know and be known by others. And he was like, yeah, that's a little oversimplistic, but sure. Um, happening, uh, su- suffering happens in a community, so the whole community. Um, but let me tell you what, what that doesn't mean. Uh, this is not to say that all members of the community experience suffering equally. Um, within community, suffering is not distributed evenly, and we are normally good at affirming that, right? We can see the people, ground zero, of, of who are affected, and we see that, that you know, they're carrying a weight that others of us aren't carrying. Um, but what I want to stress this morning is that um, suffering has a way of moving out to others. Suffering has a way of trickling into every nook and cranny of society and eroding us from the inside out. And when we look at this moment in Scripture, we're talking about the exile taking place in Lamentations. Some were killed. Others were taken to live in a far-off land. Some had to stay behind in a demolished city. So everyone has different outcomes. But that doesn't change the fact that everyone um, is impacted. In verse 1, the prophet says, Remember, O Lord, what has befallen us. Look and see our disgrace. Um, suffering is a communal activity, even if the pain doesn't land evenly. Um, my wife and I have felt um, a little bit of this, especially um, so this Lenten season. 
And a few weeks ago, Juliana, while I was at work, sent me a screenshot of a post sent out by a college friend asking for prayer because their, their wife went to check in on their four-month-old girl. And um, she's a nurse uh, by profession. She went to check in uh, on their daughter um, during a nap, and they found that she had no heartbeat. So they rushed her to the hospital. Um, they asked for prayer. Jules and I, hearing the news, were just heartbroken. And we're relatively new parents. We've got a, a little 17-month-year-old. Um, and that's probably a, bi- a big reason why. But um, I was so struck by how deeply I was affected. And I was at work and just thinking about this little four-month-old girl. And after three days of praying, um, little Tally had two tests where doctors would, would test for brain function. Um, after the second test, on the fourth day of praying, she was pronounced brain dead. Um, I spend my days working in construction, and so I'm just walking through these vacant units, and I close one of the doors of the vacant units and just beg the, girl, beg, beg the Lord to, to bring this girl back to life. Um, we joined by so many who are heartbroken by the news. Um, they live in Kansas City, and, and the trauma just exploded out because suffering is a, is a communal activity. I reached out to a doctor friend, um, who's in, who, uh, and, I, and I asked her, I said, hey, you know, in medical school, did they, did they train you about how to deal with, with this sort of regular heartbreak? I mean, you see this all the time. Like, how do you, how do you, how do you deal with it? Um, because I imagine in ministry, you have to do the same. She replied that it was important to frame the situation correctly. She said this, um, it'd be unhelpful to simply address this as something, something happening only to other people, you know, by saying, well, my patient, they went through this, or my friends, they lost their baby. She said, more, uh, it'd be unhelpful to do that without recognizing how the event rocks your world in perspective. It doesn't allow you to see how big and impactful the event is, and this prevents healthy grieving, processing, and resiliency building. She says, I think it's something we don't do well in Christian circles because it's hard to say things God allows for us are traumas, but that's a part of the story. So this morning, there might be a story that you need to allow yourself to be a part of, to be able to affirm that you're deeply affected because as you look out into the world and see the heartbreak and devastation and physical difficulties of other people, you're asking, how can God do this? And we, we allow ourselves to be measured and regulated by how we interact with other people's suffering. But this morning, maybe, just maybe, we have to enter in. The genius of, of Lamentations is that chapter 5 takes the communal impact of trauma seriously. Its structure is a little different than the first four chapters. The first four chapters have interjecting voices. They're structured as acrostics. And it's all about the thoroughness by which every piece of the trauma is laid bare before the Lord. The fifth chapter is, is a little different. The fifth chapter, there's one voice. There's a prophet speaking on behalf of the people. And, and he's speaking on behalf of the people, and it's structured as a, as a communal complaint, similar to the communal laments we, found, we find in Psalms. And what you see is that even in ancient and Greek and Latin manuscripts, they designate this poem, this chapter 5, as a prayer. So what we have in Lamentations is an affirmation, and in many ways a counter to the communal trauma that the people are facing, um, and they face that and by ending in a corporate prayer. There's a communal trauma, and they face it with a corporate prayer. And for the sake of our own grieving, processing, and resiliency building, we need to believe that suffering happens in a community to the whole community. Um, what does this mean for us? I think, I'm, just, you know, I'm trying to wrestle with a metaphor to help us understand the way we currently process other people's trauma. 
And I think we, we, we sort of face it like a movie. You know, you step into this movie, you hear this story, it moves you for a little bit. Some movies stay longer than others, but in many ways, it's a completely passive experience. Um, and I think more helpful, and we're learning a little bit about this in our parish because uh, someone in our, in our group does improv class like once a week. Um, and, and it feels like more, um, more accurately, communal trauma is more like improv theater. You know, life throws surprise scenarios on you, and we have no choice but to respond together. Um, Zach, who's not here, told us that they, they start out class each week by um, rubbing each other's backs and say, I have your back, I have your back. So if we would this morning, would you turn to your neighbor and say, I have your back, I have your back. Suffering, is a, um, suffering happens to the, in a community, to the whole community. That's point one. Point two, living faithfully is hard. And here we'll dive into verses 2 to 18, um, which are verses that read like another set of sad details in a book full of sad details. And if I don't know about you, but by chapter 5, you read through chapters 1 through 4, if you actually did read through chapters 1 through 4, and you just feel like, here we go again, another sad details that we have to sort of work our way through. And the danger is we start to feel a sense of compassion fatigue. You're like, man, I, I felt bad for you um, in chapter 1, really felt bad for you in chapter 3, but, you know, chapter 5, um, we've heard it all. But wh- what happens if, uh, if, if we sort of gloss over the details is we miss the ways um, that the Israelites really struggle with the same things and worry about the same things we struggle with. And these are the three things that, that they struggle with, that we struggle with. Three things that they worried about, okay? One, physical security. Two, financial hardship. And three, social humiliation. Um, physical security, where do we, do, where do we see that? Um, chapter two says, our inheritance has been turned over to strangers, our homes to foreigners. Our inheritance has been turned over to strangers, our homes to foreigners. The question is, what is the inheritance? Um, the most obvious thing that the inheritance can be is the land. I mean, given the setting of foreign invaders into the land of Israel, you're sort of like, okay, you know, this inheritance that's been taken from us is the land. Um, when I was in Israel for summer studying biblical lands, our professor mentioned to us over and over and over again, if you want to understand the story of the Old Testament, you have to understand Three characters constantly at play, and that's God, that's people, and the land. You're thinking, well, you know, God, people, I understand. I could see that in the text, but why the land? And the land is important because um, the land greatly influenced human interaction. Land shaped home construction, which influenced city layouts, which dictated lives and interactions of the people. Um, this is not unlike what we see today. For example, in regards to leisure, the Texas ranch is much different than the beach house in South Florida. Um, ad- activities, attitudes, and outlook, all of which contribute to identity, are shaped by the physical land and its location. I have lived in both places, and they are very different. The, the people's outlook and worldviews, what they get from these, from these locations and leisure activities, is much different. It's because... The land has a shape on the way we interact. But why did this land matter to the people? Um, For Israel, their whole narrative in the Old Testament centered on the Lord giving them this land. If you go back to Exodus 32, there's this golden calf incident, right? So Moses um, 
leads the people out of Egypt, and they're in the wilderness. And Moses, um, he's gone for too long. He goes up and speaks with God, and, he's, and, and, and him being gone for as long as he's been gone, the people start to get jittery. There's something about the silence, you know, not being able to know what the Lord is saying it makes them jittery. I really, I mean, I think there's a sermon there somewhere about, you know, not hearing from God. But in Exodus 33, the Lord is angry and pretty much tells Moses, and I paraphrase, you know, I promise to give you the land, and I'm good on my promises, but I won't go with you. And that devastates Moses. He has the most beautiful monologues where he pretty much says, Lord, if you don't go with us, um, don't send us to that land. Um, the land was an intimate part of God's relationship with his people. It's something that he promised. Um, but I want, what I want us to see this morning, this land wasn't a particularly easy place to live. I know we're thinking, well, like milk and honey, isn't that the whole point? Um, but if, if, if you go there and if you look at a map, one of the things that's the most interesting about the land, the Middle East, right, Tara, is, is that it's, it's location. If you, if you look at a map, you'll see how central of a, of a location the piece of land is and was. It sat in the middle of some of the world's primary trade routes, and over the centuries, this small Israelite kingdom sat firmly between some of the world's greatest civilizations the world has ever seen. Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome. Compared to the world's greatest peoples, this tiny Israelite nation um, should have had no shot at the most central real estate. The only reason they were there was because God intimately said, I will place you here, and I'm good on my promises. If you look at a map, it's striking the way that it, it, it just sits in between some of the, the biggest continents. Um, but every day they look out while they're in the land, and they know there were large kingdoms eyeing their territory. If you read through the Old Testament, there's constantly fear about Syria and Egypt. Um, and in order to like really help you understand this, I'm going to explain it by saying it's not unlike um, the Philippines. So me and JD, we're from the Philippines. We're both born in the Philippines. And um, the Philippines is a country, a tiny island country, that sits um, between some of the world's greatest superpowers. We have China and we have U.S. And, and we are, we, every day we sense just how small we are in the world. Um, we have this long history with the U.S., um, we were, you know, liberated and then colonized and then liberated again. Um, and, and we have this understanding that, you know, we should be friends. A couple years ago, the Chinese started building these, these islands in what we thought was our territory. So what did we do? We ran to the U.S. We said, hey, there's this big guy. They're a lot more than us. And um, we don't know if they act on anything, whether we can make it. So, so we need your help. And now, if you, if you look at the headlines, you see that we have this brash new president who says, I'm going to do something different, and I'm going to go talk to the president of China, and I will talk to their leaders, and I will, I will make a new path for us. Um, and we constantly feel and know that the world is a tumultuous place, violent and disorienting, and we're constantly tempted to bend on things that we believe to have superpower. Um, China, um, U.S., um, there are things in your life that you need to look at and say, what am I depending on? Because these have superpower. Um, Talitha's father, um, uh, our friend who lost their daughter 
he said, he gave this moving talk over in her memorial service. And he says, one observation from their time in the ICU was that they were not unique. Um, there were other families going through the same things that they were facing. There is no controlling nature, and we're tempted to seek control and stability in a hundred other directions besides trusting in the Lord. The enemy wants to make you feel like trusting in the Lord is hard, and many days it really does feel like living faithfully is difficult. So one, um, we yearn for physical security. Number two, um, we struggle and worry about financial hardship. Let's read verses 3 to 6. Um, you could follow along silently, or if you're bold, you could, you could read along with me. Um, we have become orphans, fatherless. Our mothers are like widows. We must pay for the water we drink. The wood we get must be bought. Our pursuers are at our necks. We are weary. We are given no rest. We have given the hand to Egypt and to Assyria to get bread enough. Um, in verse 4, it highlights water and wood, um, basic necessities, wood clearly helping them be able to you know, build things in their community, wood and uh, water because um, every 30 seconds you find yourself thirsty. Um, and, it, and, 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 it, and the passage makes it clear that at one point this was abundant. I mean, if you go back to Deuteronomy, the promise would be that um, you know, you'd step into this land with cisterns that you did not dig. At one point in history, there was, there was water that they didn't have to pay for. Um, but now, even that is scarce. Um, in verse 6, you see that they're deal-making for staple foods. They're deal-making with superpowers just for staple foods. And in verse 9, they risk their lives just to eat. Um, there's a sense that resources are scarce. Um, and in the world that does not have God in view, we constantly fear that we might not have enough. You think about it, um, recent studies have shown that 80% of Americans give away less than 2% of their income, and Christians don't do much better at 2.5%. Even in the wealthiest parts of the world, there's a sense that we do not have enough. Um, you often hear stories of hedge fund managers, these guys who are raking in tens of millions of dollars, struggling from insomnia because they fear they can lose it all. There's a constant sense that um, everything that they work for can slip. We're making more money than we've ever made, but still feel like we're not getting ahead. We live our lives constantly aware of these financial pressures. Um, the world and so much of it is marked by this scarcity that has us holding on and hoarding as much as, as we have. So one, they, they, they worried about financial, I mean, um, physical security. They also worried about financial hardship. Three, another thing that they battled was social humiliation. Verse 11, women are raped in Zion, young women in the towns of Judah. Princes are hung up by their hands. No respect is shown to the elders. Young men are compelled to grind at the mill, and boys stagger under loads of wood. The old men have left the city gate, the young men their music. Verse 11, it talks about um, abuse on the most physically vulnerable in the community leaving a trail of emotional and psychological chaos. Verse 12 and 13, it talks about um, the, the folks, the people in the community who are supposed to protect the most vulnerable were unable to do so. Princes are hung up by, um, up by their hands. 
um, there's, there's a sense that there's vulnerability in the whole community and, the, and, the, and those who are in charge can't do their, their job. And humiliation flows from them not being able to protect their own. Um, in verse 14, there's talk of a gate. The gate was the place for community. Business decisions were made there. Gatherings happened. And what we see is humiliated people, um, they're humiliated by the fact that they can't protect their communities, don't have much energy to hang out and party. They just don't show up. Humiliation is caused by expectations that they should have met that they could not meet. Um, and we fear that this same sense of social failure. Um, there are things that we expect ourselves to do um, because society tells us this is absolutely the bare minimum. Protect, protect you know, those who we call our loved ones. Provide for them. And often when we can't, it feels like tiny deaths. Um, so one, physical security. Two, financial hardship. Three, social humiliation. Um, but more than individually, just imagine what happens when you put together all these people who are constantly afraid of these three things. When, when, when we, we all individually struggle with these insecurities and we come together, what we could do is we have a way of multiplying these fears and dysfunctions. You think about it, um, Israel wasn't the only community in the text. Um, Babylon. Um, Babylon is, is in the text as, as the actors of this great violence. And Babylon, afraid of being humiliated by smaller nations, desiring more resources, imposes their violent power. Um, communities have a way, because they feel these deep insecurities, to multiply our fears and dysfunctions. Um, the pain we see in this world are from broken people passing along and playing hot potato with the pain that we've experienced. Um, I'm in this book club with, with other Sojourn members. I'm reading this book called The Warmth of Other Sons by Isabel Wilkerson. And this lady, Isabel Wilkerson, um, writes, writes a story or tells three stories, highlights um, three stories of the black migration. I didn't know about the black migration before reading this book, but this the black migration was this period in the early 20th century, stretching from about 1900 to 1950. Daniel, is that close? Something like that, um, where um, hundreds and thousands, um, maybe more, um, people from the South moved up North because of, because of what Jim Crow was doing in the South, just fleeing. And one of the more um, interesting things that I read um, or just observed from, from the reading was Isabel Wilkerson would go, and she did thousands of these interviews, um, but she'd go to these, these folks in, in Chicago who'd moved from down south or New York or L.A., and um, they would all start by talking about the trauma that they saw their families, their parents experience, right? So, so they've observed something, and it's the main reason that they, had, they, they, they start making their way up north in order to, to, to not be a part of it, um, you, you, you sense that even as they're talking, and this is centuries later, you know, they're doing these, these interviews 50 years later from when they left, but there's still a sense that the trauma that their communities experienced generations ago is still a part of their narrative. And we, we talk about what happens in inner cities and in, in, in these different parts of the country, and you start to see, well, maybe it's just trauma being acted out. Uh, there's still something that they, they carry um, imposed on them by the communities that they came from. 
Um, and this isn't much different than what we see going on here and now. I mean, if you turn on the news at all, the things that, that are talked about over and over again um, that motivate so much of um, our country's discourse at this point is border security, there's a fear of economic loss, and there's a sense and anger about perceived loss of our international standing. We're humiliated. And this is the place where we act out from. For the Israelites in the text, the trauma of the exile and loss of the land shapes the corporate hope that they have. They look for a Messiah who can restore their land through a physical conquest in order to redeem their social humiliation. And their memories of being taken over by Babylon is a key reason so many of their descendants in the New Testament totally miss out on the boat on Jesus. What we see here is our insecurities can be the reason we miss out on the king and his kingdom. If we live and allow ourselves to be trapped by our fears and dysfunctions, we can miss out on the king. And so here we go. And this is, this is the last point. Um, one, suffering takes place in community. Two, um, living faithfully is hard. There's real dysfunctions that we face. And three, Worship reprograms the heart. Worship reprograms the heart. Um, we'll start at verse, we'll read verse 17 and then we'll jump to 19 and, and finish the chapter. Um, actually, verse 16. The crown has fallen from our head. Woe to us, for we have sinned. For this our heart has become sick. For these, these things our eyes have grown dim. Verse 19, but you, O Lord, reign forever. Your throne endures to all generations. Why do you forget us forever? Why do you forsake us for so many days? Restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. Renew our days as of old, unless you've utterly rejected us, and you remain exceedingly angry with us. And and this is is the pathway towards um, the reprogramming of our hearts. First, it begins in repentance. The crown has fallen from our head. Woe to us, for we have sinned. Um, If you you combine that with what's taking place um, in verse 20, where he says, why do you forget us forever? Why do you forsake us for so many days? You see that there's combination of repentance and honesty. And what we want to say this morning is God can handle your honesty. You say, this is... Lord, this is what we we are experiencing as a family. Lord, do you see what we're going through? Do you see what our community is going through? And at at some points, there is a need for repentance, especially in the ways that our communities are a part of multiplying dysfunction. Um, And what we see is that if we start there, if we start with honesty and repentance, uh, it can be the launching pad of remembering who it is we're speaking to. In verse 19, it says, But you, O Lord, reign forever. Your throne endures to all generations. We start with honesty. Um, We start with honesty and repentance, but then we say, Lord, this is who you are. You spoke the earth into existence. Um, You made all things and, and allowed a tiny nation can sit in the middle of all the world's greatest civilizations. You did that, and you're capable of doing it again in our hearts. Um, 
And so your only chance of surviving life's tumultuous circumstances is you must know his character. You must see that he is sufficient. You must see that his throne, his heavenly throne, endures to all generations. Um, You also must be able to understand what your ultimate aim should be. Verse 21 says, Restore to us yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. Our prayer must be a renewed intimacy with Jesus. If your ultimate aim is anything other than intimacy with Jesus, you will have missed it. Um, This is the thing that you seek. This is the thing you crave. This is the thing you long for. In the midst of all of life's dysfunctions, this is the only thing that can keep you stable. Um, So honesty and repentance leads us to remembering his character, leads us to pleading for renewal of intimacy. Um, But how is this possible? I know me, you know me, Um, Lord, you... The Lord knows our communities. He knows that there's just deep division with him and with each other. How is this even possible? Um, In verse 4, it says, We must pay for the water we drink. The wood we get must be bought. Like I said, the wood symbolized their fears and and physical insecurities. It shaped their... um, The wood was, was, was a marker of the fact that they had just been taken over. And for 600 years, they, they were looking for a movement to get their land back. Um, it's the one thing they craved. Uh, but what we, what we see in the Gospels as they yearned for this physical security, that this wood that was a sense and, and a marker of their vulnerability becomes the marker of ultimate security. And Jesus and the cross, the wood of the cross, Jesus absorbed ultimate violence, scarcity, and social humiliation so that those who trust in him would know the abundant love of God. It's in that place. In a world that values security, he offers himself self-sacrificially. There's been this movement of destruction and decay since since the tree in the garden, the tree that that points to the wood in Lamentations, and what we have in the wood of, of, of Jesus and the cross is him um, stopping and, and, and rolling back all that's gone wrong. And this is our great hope. Um, this is the reason why we can step out and do the same. We could live self-sacrificially for others. And only knowing his great love for you will begin to reprogram your heart. Only believing that, that, that Jesus has his firm grip on you can allow you to lay your life down for other people. These insecurities that we face... Um, in light of what Jesus has done, um, gets reshaped. What does that look like? Um, A mentor, um, he's old now, but um, talks about when he got married, um, him and his wife went to New York City for their honeymoon. And uh, at rush hour, they rode the subways. Um, And as they were riding on the subways, in the middle of rush hour, if you've ever been to New York City on on rush hour, you know that there's just a lot of people. and they're riding in the subways, and they realize as more people file in that there's a greater division between, between him and his wife, right? More, they, they make a stop, more people pile in. She's two feet away. Next stop, she's five feet away. And they're just married, and he thinks to himself, wait, that's my bride. 
So what he does is people file in at the next stop, he starts swimming to her. He swims to her, and when he gets to her, he puts his arms around her. And now at each stop, as more people file in, instead of being further apart, they're pulled in closer together. The insecurities that we face, sensing them, are like people walking into the subway. They could be the reason that there's greater division between us and Jesus, or they could be the very reason that pulls us in much closer. It could be the very place where we feel his, his greatest intimacy, his greatest love for us in our community. Um, and only a church so taken by this intimacy can be what the world needs. Only this church that, that believes so much that we could live from a place of generosity can be what the world needs. Only a church so taken by the ways of the kingdom, the, this counter-narrative, um, can counter the usual rules and regimes of earth of earthly politics so that the world can believe there's something different about our Jesus. And this is the hope that we live into. Jesus has, has died on a cross, rewriting the narrative that, that we naturally fall into. And he says we can no longer have to live in fear of, of physical insecurity, of, being able to, um, of needing to hoard in order to protect ourselves, of being afraid of social humiliation. We can live from a different narrative. Um, in Lamentations 5, and this is where we close, there's this wood that symbolizes insecurity. Like I said, it reminds us of a tree found in Genesis that brought death and decay into the world. Um, but at last, in Revelations, there's also another tree. The writer says that this tree that sits in the heavenly city um, with, the hev- uh, with the river of life sitting below it has leaves that will be for the healing of the nations. We suffer in community, but at the end, so long as you trust him, there is a tree that heals all the violence and humiliation. We, our families, churches, and neighborhoods have ever caused and or experienced. Our God is faithful to see us through. So let's press on together. Let's pray. Lord, we, we pray that you'd give us a vision of you unlike any other vision of life that we've seen um, that's more tempting and tantalizing, Lord, that, that, that believing um, in you is, uh, would so take us um, and, and plunge us into a level of trust that we haven't experienced before. We believe that you're good. We believe that you're faithful. We thank you for being true. Um, would we depend on you and trust you even when living faithfully is hard? Would we worship you until we feel our hearts reprogrammed to see you? In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.